Okay, at this time, Mr. Curtis Whiteley will be conducting our James Bible study, the book of James. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be back here on God's Sabbath day. Uh, as was mentioned by Sean, we are starting, uh, I guess you would say, to lesson two in the James Bible study that we have uh, started just a few weeks ago. And this is on James, the first chapter, verses 9 through 18. And N.T. Wright, he entitles this lesson, The Snares of the World and the Gift of God. And like every single lesson, there is a little introduction. And so to start things off, I'd like to ask if somebody would like to volunteer to read this introduction, which is on page 15. Would anybody like to read that for us? No takers? Mark? Appreciate it. John here. There we go. Uh, Just down to before where it says open. The the first on on page fifteen, the first little narrative there. Right. Okay. Listen for the echo, said my friend. We were standing at the back of a great cathedral, and the choir was about to sing a powerful, beautiful anthem. Sure enough, the conductor knew what he was doing. As each part of the anthem developed, the building seemed to pick it up, cherish it, play with it, and use it as a background to the next part. After a while, it was hard to tell what was actual echo and what was in our memory, in our mind, while we were listening to the next bit. When finally the choir fell silent, there was a full ten seconds in which we could savor the last chord. The whole building was designed that way, so as to give the impression that, along with the human choir, there were other, older voices, hundreds of years of worship on earth, joining in, not to mention the heavenly hosts themselves. So I felt like this little introduction was kind of interesting, and, and like N.T. Wright does, and we're going to see, uh, and as you've probably already seen, if you've looked through this uh, study and looked at the questions that N.T. Wright asks us, they're challenging questions. They're questions that aren't just immediately things that we can answer. We have to really think about them. We have to think about what we know from Scripture. We have to think about what we know from our life experience. And he, he gives this opening question like he does in every one of the lessons. And, and, and he's, he's using this analogy, right, of this cathedral that was built. And, and the purpose of it being built of course, was so, you know, whenever they would sing and they would stop singing, there would be this echo. And he, he brings this idea of an echo up as an analogy for us to listen to the echo of Scripture. Uh, and he asked this first question on page 15. He says, some echoes are wonderful while others are annoying. What experiences have you had listening to echoes? And you can think of that literally just experienced and listening to, you know, different, you know, uh, I guess you would say acoustics, right, in life, different buildings. But there's also a metaphorical purpose to this question, I think. Yes, Carolyn. Uh, Eight-year-old grandsons saying phrases that there's no way he would know except he's heard his mom and possibly grandma Sam. So 
having the echoes of what you think and say come out of the mouths of children. So absolutely, absolutely. There's a you know there's a there's a connection, but you know, and that growth you know growing up and 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 your example that there's you know as they live their life they. They're saying those things, and it's from the echoes of what they've heard. Does anybody else want to try to answer this question or bring, you know, maybe uh, a different perspective? I know that whenever I looked at this question, uh, and, I, and, I, and I looked at it in the context of what N.T. Wright was just saying in that narrative about how in that cathedral they would sing, and when they would stop singing, they could hear the echoes, and it was... Uh, constructed this cathedral in such a way, in a purposeful manner for that to happen as kind of an analogy of that echo being those Christians of the past and even that heavenly host. And so whenever I first read this, I thought of Hebrews, the 12th chapter. I try not to do this, but I couldn't help but bring another scripture in. We all know Hebrews, the 12th chapter where, where, where the, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And, of course, he says this, the author of this, this epistle says this right after the great faith chapter, right? Describing all of the men and women of faith that we read about in our scriptures. And so I think about the echo of those Men and women of God who have come before us, both in the scripture, but then also on a personal level, like on a more local level. Because, you know, growing up in this church, in this way of life, it's hard not to, when we do certain things that we do year in, year out. Specifically, I can think of the Passover. We're sitting here and it's almost the exact same way that the Passover has been kept by this congregation from whenever I was, you know, five, six, seven years old, whenever I was, you know, aware, you know, my, my earliest memory of it. And in a way, I feel the echo of those who have went before us, not just in Scripture, but also those that were a part of our congregation that maybe have went on and are now sleeping in Christ and awaiting, just like Hebrews 11 says, those other individuals of faith, waiting to receive their inheritance. There's a connection that we have, not just with each other, but those that have went before us, those who have went before us. So let's go ahead. I'm going to go ahead and read James, the first chapter, verses 9 through 18. And then we'll kind of get into the questions that, uh, that N.T. Wright asked us. So James, the ninth, uh, first chapter, verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. Verse 10, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass as the flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed, verse 12, is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be, be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. 
But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from God, from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we may, might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And with this passage, this first question that N.T. Wright asks us in our study book, he says in this passage, James warns his readers to avoid two snares. The first snare is wealth. In light of this snare, why are the poor called to celebrate? And he points to verses 9 through 11. So would anybody like to take a stab at this? Why are the poor called to celebrate? Got something, Larry? Really, if they, if they under, know the truth of the matter, <clears throat> if, what <clears throat> they're not they're not serving God, they're serving a false god. If money is what what they're uh, is what they're serving, so um, the the poor, if they know the truth about the matter, about what God says about. Um, false gods and serving money, okay, the poor, if they know the truth about it, that they're not under that snare, that they're serving the true God, they, they have reason to celebrate. We got another question over here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Giving them a cough drop. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Does anybody else want to try to answer this question? James. Oh, hi. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I don't recognize my voice from the thing. Anyways, uh, <laughs> sorry, just uh, took me off guard. Yeah, just a quick comment. I was just going to say that um, perhaps the poor celebrate because we know that the rich, uh, it's harder for them to enter the kingdom. Uh, I think uh, it was said that, uh, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich, rich man to enter the kingdom. So, as poor, you have less worldly possessions, less things that are hold you, holding you to the earth, and you look for your riches in heaven. Uh, so that's just my comment. Thank you, James, and I think that you know kind of hits on a little bit of what I wrote down here. And I was kind of reading, you know, some different things on James, and I came across this, you know. I guess you would say approximate fact of about 90% of the Roman Empire, the population of the Roman Empire, lived in a state of at or below what we would consider in modern times as poverty level. And so when we read the Bible, it, it talks so much about wealth in a negative way uh, when it comes to wealth of the world. It talks about wealth of God and, and, and the treasures that God gives us but I thought it was interesting because uh, when we think about this idea of, of, of wealth in the Bible, it's, a lot of times the Bible almost presents it like it's a burden. 
You know, there's, there's a burden to wealth. And in the context of what I think James is getting at, and I just kind of wrote this down, the idea of the poor rejoicing. James says some really difficult things to understand. He says, you know, you know be happy when, you, when, you, when you're in trials. You know, when you're poor, you know, you should celebrate, right? You should, you know, uh, be glad. And I think a lot of what James is getting at, uh, the James in the Bible, not James Andrews, I think of what James is getting at, uh, essentially, is that the poor, they don't have that snare that blinds them. And I think the next question is, I think, going to give us a little bit more uh, insight to what James is getting to. But, the, but poverty does, to some extent, provide opportunity for our faith to grow because we're required you know, to rely more on God. We don't have... You know, that false sense of security that maybe some of the times those people who are wealthy have. So. Well, also, it says that the poor will be exalted. So that's the reason to celebrate because you realize, you know, it's, it doesn't matter your class of your wealth because you're going to be exalted at wherever level you're at if your trust isn't in the manna. So. Sure, absolutely. Let's go ahead and, oh, Reggie. Very practical. <laughs> kind of a punch there with that. In a very practical sense, um, sin uh, requires wealth to finance it. So if you do not have the wealth to finance the sin, you're less likely to go into it. Sure, and that's where that snare, that, that burden, that, you know, the trap, I guess you could say, of wealth can kind of come from. So the next question, on question two, N.T. Wright says, listen for the echo. The early Christians lived and worked within a massive echo chamber, more vast than any cathedral. It was, of course, the Old Testament. In this text, we find a clear echo of a famous passage the prophet Isaiah wrote in chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. James is encouraging us to hear the particular teaching he is giving within this much larger echo chamber to allow the ancient echoes to color the way we think about what he's saying. And he asks this question, why are the rich to celebrate when they are brought low? Why are the rich to celebrate when they are brought low? Ken? Uh, the rich should always be mindful and celebrate the fact that God has blessed him or her with riches, uh, with success in their endeavors. Uh, it, don't have the mindset that he or she was the source of this success, that, you know, like, I did it all myself, you know, if, because if the Lord does not bless it, it's not going anywhere. Sure. Anyone else want to answer this question? Larry? No, you were the only one. Um, way, way that comes through to me, um, that person would have to come to the point in his life that his, he's serving the wrong God. He's serving riches and wealth, that which is a false God. But... Until he comes to the point in his life that he has a relationship with his creator and his life has so changed that 
and he's serving the true God the where the true riches are and that would he really have a reason to celebrate because <laughs> he's he that he well when you're not serving the true God you're serving a false God I think there's different ways that we can look at this uh, for me, in looking at what James is saying, it's almost as if James is saying that the rich celebrate not in their wealth, but after they've had the blindfold taken off. So the blindfold is, you know, the, the riches, you know. And so when James asks the question, you know, or, you know, not James, when James makes the statement, let the rich basically, you know, glory or be happy in their, you know, humiliation or their humbleness and, and then being brought low, I think James is getting at the idea that they're realizing it's, it's, it's like the blinders. Let them rejoice that the blinders have been taken off. That God has revealed to them that their riches are like the flowers of the field. That they come and go and tomorrow the sun hits them and they wither away. So it's almost like James is saying rejoice that God has revealed to you that false sense of security. Because that's what riches did. People... It made people, and it's still, obviously, today, it makes people think that they have all the resources that they need to take care of themselves. It gives them a false sense of security, false sense of safety. But the, that's a blind perspective. The wealth is blinding them, and those blinders being taken off, in the being brought low, the realization of what, tr what they really are in reality, and that is at any moment that stuff can be taken away. At any moment, you can be killed, you can be robbed. None of that stuff you're taking with you into the kingdom of God. You know, I've once thought about how, you know, people talk about, you know, a poor man or poor woman passes away, and a, poor, a rich man and a rich woman passes away, and they're, they're, they're going to the same place. Now, I'm talking about physically. They're put in a box and put in the ground. So in the end, they both go to the same place. All of those riches did nothing. They couldn't take it with them. They wither away just like them and their self withers away. And so they come to that realization that, you know, the, the wealthy, that, you know, I'm, I'm nothing. This is always, this, I'm, I've been blinded. I've, I've, I've put my faith in riches that really doesn't have any eternal value. And th at that point is when they can start to discover where the true exaltation comes from. In the, in the humbleness, in the lowliness is the starting point where you can be truly and genuinely and eternally exalted. Because it's at that point that you realize what the true journey is to get true eternal exaltation in Christ Jesus. So let's move on to the next question. Uh, question three, I think we're in. and We'll probably skip around some of these questions just for the sake of time. But this is kind of a personal question. Question three, in what ways do you put your confidence in your wealth or possessions? And this is kind of a, a personal question. In what ways do you, anyone want to divulge, I guess you would say, put your confidence in your wealth or possessions, or maybe maybe this isn't something you do now, but maybe it's an example from your past, from you know, life. Well, for me, I had a pretty good position, 
and I made really pretty good money. And I was real proud of that and everything. And then all of a sudden you, I was forced to retire. And when you retire, all of a sudden the things that you thought of yourself, how great you were, or how wonderful you were, all of a sudden you find out that nobody cares what you did, or what you were, or who you did. And you can talk to people outside your job, they have no understanding what you're talking about. So all of a sudden you find out that you're, you're back to square one and you're with God and you've got to bring yourself to his understanding and you realize that how important he is in your life and what he's going to do for you and all those things that you did for years ago, they're gone. And the money that you made and stuff like that, you might put it in more retirements and stuff, but you don't have the money to throw out like you did before or something like that. So it's sure. a humbling experience that you come into God and then you realize that even what you have right now could be taken away from you. Absolutely. Sean, thank you for that. I just want to echo the same thing of what John just said as far as like identity and job and such. After losing a few jobs, you realize that's not what it's all about. And even like the car you drive and such, um, like you get a new car and you're all concerned, I don't want to eat in this car, I'm going to take good care of it. And when, then you get somebody who backs into you and smashes the front of your car in, and you drive around with a green hood, and <laughs> you tend to not worry so much about stuff like that anymore and focus on what's really important. Sure, and thank you, Sean. Uh, you know, what both of you guys said, it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, when we think about wealth, I mean, there's the literal way to think about wealth, financial wealth, but, you know, there's other, other ways that we can think about wealth and we can, you know, I guess you would say, you know, look at other aspects of our life other than just fiscal wealth that we're wealthy in. Wealthy in ability, right? Okay? So you got a star pitcher or something that has all the ability in the world. Everyone pays him, you know, they pay him millions of dollars, right? To pitch 100 miles per hour. And then just like that, they could have a car wreck and something can happen to them and their arm could be, you know, amputated or something like that. Just in the split, you know, in a split second, that can all go away. It's, it's temporal. It's temporal and it's subject to. It's subject to the things that can happen to us in life. Or maybe it's intellectual ability. Maybe you're very smart. You have, you know, you know, you have a high IQ. You have uh, you know, mental capacity that a lot of people don't have. And something happens, and you get brain damage. And you can't do those things anymore. And so all of those things that you know, you've placed your identity in and your worth in, and you've looked at those things that that's what's made you valuable, you realize can be taken away in a split second. And you realize, I think all of us, it's not just people in the world, I think even us as Christians. You know, I think we can even apply this to righteousness, right? You know, we kind of get haughty. We think that, you know, oh, we're really on the right path. We, you know, we really follow God. And, and then we realize in a moment of weakness that we're really not as strong in our faith. And, you know, that, that word maybe hasn't, uh, you know, uh, created in us quite the strength that we thought it did. So I think there's a lot of ways that we can look at this uh, in terms of, you know, when we have and put our confidence in wealth or our possessions. Because I think
that we can also think of it in terms of when we put our focus or our trust in our own abilities, our IQ, uh, our things like that. So the next question, question four, how does wealth or poverty affect your relationship with God? How does wealth or poverty affect your relationship with God? And I really think that we can kind of skip that question because it's kind of related to that previous question. So I'm going to go ahead and go down to, uh, let's go down to question six. Question six, uh, which really is, is, is the question, what is the result of succumbing to temptation? And he points to verse 15. So just to read verse 15 again, I'm going to go ahead and read it. He says, then, well, I'm going to go ahead and read 12 through 15. It says, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So the question is, what is the result of succumbing to temptation? What, is, what does he say? Real simple. Fran? It can, it can cost us our eternal life. With, without repentance. Anybody else want to chime in? And Larry? <clears throat> um, what what comes, to my, comes to my mind, uh, it depends wholeheartedly whole, whole, upon what the sin is. Because I think if we, if we know what God says, why it's back in uh, John, 1 John 5, where he, he says that there are some sins that do not lead to death. But like Francis uh, brought up too, some sins, God, the liars, the adulterers, um, they're not going to be in the kingdom. So to me, it depends if on the sin, and sin affects our relationship with our Creator. Anybody else? Keith? Sorry. By something. When it's, uh, you're feeling, you start to feel guilt, and there's actual physiological changes that take place in your body. Um, you don't, you don't uh, want to eat, you don't sleep good it's constantly on your mind and I think in some ways that's good because you are constantly aware that what you were thinking or what you did was wrong and maybe it's those kind of things that take us to God to ask for forgiveness I think it uh, ultimately leads to death, but if you look at the beginning and then where it goes, it's separation, which leads to isolation. And so your relationship, not only with God, but with people, I'm speaking, I know from 
how my life went for many, many years. I didn't even know I was doing it, but I was isolating and, and it cuts off intimacy with people and obviously intimacy with God too. So, Sean? Uh, to take it a step further, like what Keith was saying, you start to build walls around your heart, you become more callous, and you don't, um, as you're separating yourself from God, like he was saying, you don't realize just how far off you become to the point where you're not realizing you're hurting other people or hurting yourself because you're falling deeper and deeper in the darkness, exactly where Satan wants you to be. Matthew. Um, I mean, rightly so, we're looking at obviously the negative side of this, this verse, but there's, there's kind of an interesting positive in here as well. So remember he says, then when desire is conceived, it uh, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So there's, there's uh, a good thing in there that we can realize that it's actually kind of bringing forth a creature, right, in us that is getting matured and developed if we keep sinning, if we keep missing the mark, if we keep kind of feeding that creature, right, or almost resurrecting the old man. But there's, there's um, you know, a benefit to understanding this because we can kill it. It's something that can be reversed before it reaches maturity and then brings forth death. You know, so if we're thinking about it in a life journey, uh, way, then I, I think it's, it's, I mean, he's giving us the warning, but we have a hope in this that we can reverse that trend. Thank you. Art? Follow up on Matthew's comment that sometimes, you know, we, we see the negative side of temptation, and down the road, when we've overcome something and established a character value where it's no longer a temptation, we don't even recognize it anymore. And it's like, I remember one time in my life when I did recognize that, I was like ready to go out and dance in the street because it was so, hey, I've overcome it. I didn't even realize it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Does anyone else want to chime in on this question? If not, I think we'll, we'll go ahead and move on to, the, do you have something, Steve? Go ahead, Steve. You were thinking, I could tell. One thing here. Um, it's interesting that um, this process brings forth death. It doesn't necessarily, I mean, if somebody doesn't initially repent, you know, they, they're going to end up in the lake of fire. But we see a lot of this going on in the society today in, in the areas of road rage and things like that, where all of this culminates in potentially someone else's death, not necessarily because um, your, your own death, but somebody else's death, because these things begin to, to build into a person's heart, and then he, you know, acts it out eventually in murder, rape, or whatever, you know, that is already in his heart. So we see that in a society that we live in. Yeah, there's a physical consequence as well as a a spiritual consequence, absolutely. So question seven, he says, in stark contrast to death, the end result of temptation, God promises the crown of life to those who endure. How can you recognize that you are being tempted in order to avoid succumbing to it? And I think that this is a difficult question 
But a question that I, I'm glad that he posed this because I think it's important for us to, to think about this question. And that is, uh, how can you recognize that you are being tempted in order to avoid succumbing to it? Anybody want to take a stab at this question? Go ahead, Trevor. I mean, that's what you have to refer to the law for. I mean, that's what the roadmap is for us. It's a light to our feet. It kind of highlights what the path is, what we should be doing. And then as you know, followers of Christ for some time, you know, that law does get written in your heart. And so your conscience and the spirit is going to be telling you, I think of what Carolyn said, you know, the uncomfortableness, uncomfort you know, that, you know, you're, you're at, at this ease, you know, you're not at ease. And so you have the tools, and it's not just the external, it's also the internal. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you just listen to that, you know, small voice, it's pretty apparent. Ken? <clears throat> One of the ways to recognize being drawn as to sin is recognize what sin is. So in order to do that, we need to be studying God's word so that we can see what he wants us to do, how he wants us to live, and if we're not living that way, then we're sinning. We're going into sin. So uh, we need we need to focus on God and what He has in in mind for us, and be humble, because sin usually finds a good foothold in pride. You know, and well, whatever I'm doing is right. And, you know, because I want it or whatever goofy reason we want to come up with will lead us astray. Whereas we'll follow, if we'll be humble, if we'll follow God's word, we'll stay there. Reggie? Or Art, he's already. Art, then Reggie. Uh, yeah, I was going to just say that one of the uh, one of the challenges is awareness of what you're doing and what path you're on and what's happening to you. And part of that, I think, is being guided by the Holy Spirit and asking daily that he would uh, reveal to you the path that you're on and help you out with those situations, making you aware of them and also uh, guiding you in how to handle them. Thank you. Reggie? All right. The, fruit, the fruits of the heart are made manifest through our actions. If we examine our actions and see where we're spending our time and resources, we can get a good idea of what's the root in the heart. Sean? To just further expand on that, if something's a problem for you, stay away from it. If you have an issue with something on TV, don't watch it. If there's a certain way you're driving to work where there's distractions, you see things on billboards or and such, put your visor down. Do whatever it takes to, and if you start to recognize there's a problem there, then make adjustments. Steve? Um, this is going to give me my age in a way, but I remember. Um, Today we have the social media and all of that. Uh, when I was younger, it was just the television ads. You know, you have these, all these television ads. Well, they made smoking look like such a wonderful thing. You know, they can take something that really was very de detrimental and, you know, a lot of 
um, actors I mean, succumbed to cancers and lung cancer later on. So they made it look like it was so wonderful to do it. And that's what we, we have to be aware of. The enticement from every angle <laughs> in society that we live in today is greater than even when I was a kid and then the only thing that you had to worry about was, you know, being hooked into, you know, a lifetime of, of smoking <laughs> and different things like that. But um, we, we really do live in a society that you, you've got to watch out for that. Keith, go ahead. The, uh, the thing that Sean was bringing up, I put down, the temptation comes from our desires, which is our flesh. And so you think about, I mean, that's what I had to think about is what are my weaknesses? And sometimes you don't want to think about that. But I had to, you have to kind of pinpoint what your weaknesses are. Once you figure that out, then you know those are weaknesses. And those aren't necessarily, I've found out, don't get taken away just because you pray harder study more, love God more, the weaknesses don't go away. But you know what they are, so you do whatever you have to do to uh, allow God to help you in the weaknesses. So, Thank you for everybody on that input. There's a lot of different thoughts I have, but kind of one of the things going back to what Ken said about you know, studying God's Word, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of Jesus being tempted by Satan right in the wilderness. He's tempted, and he he intellectually knew the word of God frontwards and backwards, but he also embodied the word of God. And so, you know, we, we, we've used that analogy before, right, of a, like a bank teller that's working with money all the time, right, all the time, day in, day out, day in, day out. And they, they just by feel, by look, they can sense, you know, what authentic money is and what counterfeits look like. And so it's interesting how there's this correlation between you know, immersing ourselves in, in the Word of God and helping us identify counterfeits, counterfeit ideas that really are opposed to God, but maybe somehow we're being tempted to think, well, really, that's not so bad. Well, that's okay. Or, you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, I, I can do this. Or, you know, the way I approach this is, is, you know, not sinful. And so we can think of the sin aspect uh, and and. It, it, but at the same time, I think that there's the sin aspect, but I think there's all, also other aspects that maybe James is getting at too because we have temptation to sin, but we also have temptations and trials. You know, we're tempted, we're, we're, we're put on, we're, we're tested, I guess you would say, by God in different things that come our way. And so sometimes, you know, we can recognize if we're succumbing to those tests in negative ways, if we maybe fall back and start thinking like the rich man does. Like, oh, I can figure this out myself. Or I can, I can handle this problem. I'm big enough for this. I'm strong enough for this. I have the resources, whether it be intellectually, spiritually. And we start, stop thinking about that lowliness of reality of what we are and how reliant we are on God and how reliant we are on God. And so just something interesting I wanted to point out on this passage where he talks about this crown of life right? Uh, the crown of life. Now, this word crown, it's, there's a couple different words in the New Testament, but Paul says, for those who endure, they'll be considered worthy of the crown of life. Not Paul, excuse me, James. I've been in Paul a lot lately. I sometimes have a habit of doing that. James, okay? And I've done a series on James, too, so. Uh, but anyways, what I'm saying is, is that 
There's different ways in this context that people in the first century, James's hearers, would understand the word crown. Crowns were given, like the laurel wreaths that they would wear, like in sporting events for the victors. There was also crowns that were bestowed upon certain guests at wedding feasts and things like that for places of honor and things and prestige. And so Paul says, it's a, a, James, excuse me, I apologize, man. Uh, James says that we are going to be given this crown of life. All of those crowns that are bestowed upon people, whether in a sporting event, uh, whether as a guest of honor at a feast, they're all dead. They're not living things. They don't you know, stand the test of time. And James is saying that you're giving a crown of life. Life. You're given life, which is the opposite of what the wages of sin are, right? And I just thought it's interesting as we think about this idea of those who endure and are presented and declared worthy. Now, we know we're not worthy. We're not worthy. It's through Christ's blood. But I just wanted to bring that out because I think that the readers of James' epistle, they would, they would be thinking of those things. So let's go on to, look at how we are on time. We just got a few more minutes. I want to skip down to question, uh, let's go to, let's go to, let's go to the last question. Where in your life do you need the Word of God now to heal hurts or change motivations? I think it's interesting kind of going back to what Keith says about recognizing our weaknesses. Paul, this time I'm saying Paul, exhorts us in 1 Corinthians, right? When we talk about and we think about the Passover, we do it yearly. I don't think it necessarily has to be year or just once a year. But he says, examine yourself. Examine yourself. And here we are, almost halfway through February, Passover coming up. It just kind of reminded me to think of that in light of this, where we need the Word of God maybe to work in our life and maybe heal hurts or change motivations. Examine ourselves. So that question is, again, I'd like anyone would like to, to share, where in your life do you need the Word of God now to heal hurts or change motivations? Yeah, just um, briefly, not to, don't put away the Word of God in your life in the sense of, as you said, this time of year, be thinking about Scripture, do things like what we're doing here, Bible study, don't put it away, keep it there, keep it close, and that way you, you can keep yourself motivated to keep on going and uh, to face the trials of this world and the temptations of this world. Renee? Thank you. This is this question is actually um, an invitation to be really vulnerable, <laughs> which is really hard to do in a setting like this, but I'm going to try. Um, Matt and I have been doing a class called uh, Soul Care through a ministry called the, um, what's it called again? <laughs> Stickman Ministries. Yes. And so anyway, it's a soul care class, and it's teaching you how to understand yourself and understand others better and motivations and um, how to have grace and how to have grace for yourself. And so in answering this question, where in your life do you need the word of God 
now to heal hurts or change motivations. For me personally, this last um, couple weeks, we've been in a unit studying um, neurodiversity and how differently brains can be wired and how different experiences throughout life can rewire a person's brain. In fact, it can take up to seven years to regain the actual neuro neurological connections that are lost through trauma. It's a fascinating study. But in learning about that, I've recognized in myself certain like neuro, neurological wirings that are not um, maybe the way they were supposed to be. And I have a real tendency toward anxiety and toward fear. And that's not from God. It's my personal reaction to you know things that have happened in my life. But in recognizing that and in, in examining myself and looking at, okay, these are some of my tendencies, some of my um, temptations. I mean, even to fear and to worry and to try to take control of things, that's a temptation. That's a real temptation. And, and James speaks directly to that, especially in chapter one, that when you have fears and when you have um, trials and tribulations, go to God and ask for wisdom. So that's what this lesson, this um, chapter, this study is helping me to do is to remember, okay, I, I don't have the answers. I don't have to have the answers. I don't have to rely on myself, but I can go to God and ask for that wisdom. And he won't chastise me. He won't um, be harsh. He'll he'll be generous. It's a good, I really appreciate that input there, and it's just kind of goes to show you that you know our motivations. You know, it's not always just. Well, it, it, we don't just always have to ask God to, to to help us with our motivations or temptations into sin. Maybe there's you know sin. Obviously, it 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 deviates from the path of the new create, creature that God's creating in us, right? But things like what Renee's saying, it does the same thing. It deviates us from the path of the new creature that we're trying to, that God's trying to create in us. So I think all of those different things, uh, enticement to sin, motivation to sin, motivation or inclinations to anxiety, fear, some people's inclinations is to anger uh, or to, for, for negativity, all of those things, I think, are things that we have to go to the Word of God. We have to hear His voice in the Word of God, but also the echo. I like to go back to the echo analogy, the echo of those who have went before us in our personal life as well as in Scripture who might have went through the same things, albeit in different situations, but similar things. We'll go ahead and one more comment, Darla. Like Renee was saying, we need to recognize that we all have needs, and it's okay to have those needs. So don't feel bad on yourself if you legit are having a need that's not being met. Well, we're going to go ahead and conclude this. I'm going to go ahead and do a, uh, I think that we'll, since of time, we'll just go ahead and, and, and not worry about the prayer. Uh, all of us, you know, we're here, we're, we're thanking God for this. I appreciate all the input. I know sometimes these studies can kind of be a little discombobulated, uh, a lot of it because of me, uh, but there's a lot of questions, and you're trying to get to the ones that you feel that I kind of felt like uh, that kept us, uh, you know, moving along, but also, uh, you know, that might be the most beneficial. So appreciate everyone's input in this study. Next week, uh, we'll be moving on to the next section in James.